who who knows if we're even making progress on them? I mean, our field has been has been humbled. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague Mickey Inslicht. How's it going, Mickey? Uh, it's going pretty well. I feel uh, it's been a few weeks, I think, since we've last recorded. So uh, happy to be here. I'm excited for today's show. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah. So you were on vacation, right? Meaning you were doing even less work than usual. <laughs> even less work than usual. That's right. Yeah. I went to Prince Edward County. It's a couple hours uh, east of Toronto, right on Lake Ontario. It's actually a little island in Lake Ontario. And it's 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 fabulous. I mean, white sand beaches, uh, you know, lots of vineyards, lots of wine country, uh, farms, fresh corn, fresh produce. I mean, it was, it was lots of fun and, and, and good time with the family. Well, that sounds amazing. Um, we're happy to have you back in Toronto. Now, this week we are joined uh, by a special guest uh, who we're very excited to have on the show. Mickey, would you like to introduce our guest this week? Yes, I'm. I, I, I'm very happy to. Uh, we've been waiting a while uh, for for our next guest. Our next guest is Dr. Clay Routledge, who is an author and a psychologist, a uh, full professor of social psychology at North Dakota State University. Uh, Clay received his PhD in 2005 from the University of Missouri at Columbia. And now much of his research, which we'll get into uh, over the course of the show, especially in the second half, uh, focuses on uh, people's meaning, uh, need for meaning in life and, and the need to belong. Uh, so really, you could say he focuses on existential psychology, some of the deep questions, uh, you know, uh, kind of getting at uh, people's quest for, for order, people's quest for, you know, understanding and, and, and what people may do when that doesn't happen. Uh, Dr. Outlitch Clay has published uh, 95 scholarly papers, co-edited two books uh, on existential psychology, and he's authored uh, a number of books. Uh, his first uh, uh, book that he authored is called Nostalgia, a Psychological Resource. And just, I think it was uh, a month or two ago, uh, he published a brand new book uh, called Supernatural, Death, Meaning, and the Power of the Invisible World. And that was published, like I said, a few months ago by Oxford uh, University Press. Um, in addition to this, uh, you know, Clay has uh, authored a number of op-eds and, 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 and articles for the popular press, including at the Wall Street Journal, uh, Scientific American, uh, the New York Times, and I believe he's a, uh, a regular contributor at the National Review as well. So, Clay, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're, we're really looking forward to it. Uh, I, you know, I, I know we had this whole plan of doing this and that, but I, I'm really thirsty. Uh, I need a beer. Yeah, we need to open our beers post-haste. Yeah, so maybe, Clay, you want to tell us what, what you got in front of you? Yeah, so I picked up um, a couple beers from my favorite local brewery, Junkyard Brewery, which is in Moorhead, Minnesota, which I'm in North Dakota, but we're right on the border of Minnesota. In fact, from my house, I can walk over to Minnesota within a couple minutes. Um, so it's a cool little brewery there. They do a lot of neat stuff, a lot of experimental stuff. And so I picked up what they call, I believe, a crowler which is a 25 ounce or 750 milliliter can. And it's an experimental IPA. West, I think it's a West Coast style IPA. So it's going to be super hoppy. Yeah, very hoppy. Yeah. And uh, a crowler, not a growler. A growler is one of those big glass jugs. I don't know if this is a real term, but I think they use it. 
Um, yeah, so it's just like a it's just like a really big aluminum can. <laughs> yeah, so it's a growler in can form. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I you know when I, when when I was in, in university, we used to call those king cans, the yes. big seven hundred fifty mil cans. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I, I've heard that as well. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Well, we have uh, with us, and I, I'm going to need your help here, Yoel, uh, since you are fluent in German and I'm not. Uh, so I was in Germany about uh, three or so weeks ago, and this is now our second gift, our second donation of beer, this time from uh, my good friend Malta Frieza, who is a professor of, uh, of social psychology um, in Saarland. And uh, he bought this beer for us, and he said it comes from northern Germany. And beyond that, I mean, I can read it, but I'm, I'm going to butcher, butcher the, the German. So uh, what can you tell us about this beer? So this is a Flensburger Pilsner, and it says on the bottom here, erbwürzig und frisch, which means like uh, herby and fresh, I guess. I'm probably mistranslating that a little bit. Um, and on the back, it just solicits you to, like, do some sort of charitable thing. So this this is actually not informative. It's a pilsner, as you can see, because you can read. Yes, I can read that part. But yeah, yeah. Basically, I'm I'm useless here. Sorry. And Flensburger, I'm guessing, is the name of the brew house. Uh, I assume it comes from Flensburg. I haven't. I've never heard of that city. Uh, in northern Germany, I'm told. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Well, this is a uh, this is not nearly as large as Clay's king can. Yeah, I feel a little <laughs> pathetic. Yeah. In fact, it's, you know, normally we have a pint can or or a half liter. Uh, this one is like thirty point thirty three liters. So you know, three hundred thirty uh, a regular size bottle. Regular size bottle. All right. You want to crack them open? Yeah, let's crack them open. Let's do it. Cheers, uh, buddy. Cheers. Cheers, Clay. Cheers. cheers. <laughs> All right. I'm gonna pour mine in a fancy glass. Yeah, do it. You'll, otherwise, you'll uh, you'll drink that far too quickly. Class act. Oh, this is good. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll put uh, you know my 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 hypothesis about uh, German beers to test today. Um, oh, whether we get hungover? Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll you know like, I'll report on Twitter tomorrow. I've already I, I cheated. I already started with a <laughs> with a half liter of beer before he got here. Nice. <laughs> That's how you avoid the hangovers for sure. <laughs> I, I cheated too. I had a. Uh, a beer at um, earlier after a, a busy day at work. So that was a couple hours ago, though. So. All right. So you guys have a head start on me. I haven't been drinking at all. Um, and uh, Clay, I don't know what if you know What is new, Yoel? Yeah. This is, this is consistent with my reputation on the show, where uh, I, I get chastised uh, every time for not drinking enough. So I'm, I'm looking forward to letting Mickey down again. <laughs> it's what I do best. <laughs> so, uh, Mickey, uh, do you want to give a little bit of the context of... Um, of what led us to actually invite Clay onto the show. Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, so really the seed for, for you know, Clay being on the show was, was planted actually after our first ever episode. That was our first episode called uh, In Search of the Campus Free Speech Crisis. And I think you know, we had a back and forth, UL and I did, uh, about uh, kind of the facts on the ground. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of angst about there being a free speech crisis. And we kind of dug in, looked at the numbers, and talked about our own experiences as well. And I think people appreciated the take. But one comment I got, uh, we got, uh, from a few people, but I would say most notably Lee Jussum, was that we didn't actually have uh, an, an actual conservative on the show. So you all and I, I think we both identify as liberals, uh, although I think maybe slightly more centr centrist than, than maybe some liberals. Um, 
but you know, our own views are, are are shaped by the fact that you know we're in the majority, and uh, maybe our views are, are 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 will be different, would be different if, if we were actually a conservative. So, uh, Lee suggested, hey, invite a, a conservative, and and I thought of Clay immediately. Uh, you write, as I mentioned, uh, for the National Review, and uh, you're outspoken about some of your attitudes and views. And uh, I thought it'd just be interesting, uh, informative uh, for our viewers, for us. Um, and I say this because, you know, just even a, a few weeks ago, I was on Twitter and I saw what I would call dismissal of the view that conservatives, uh, let's say in academia, in psychology specifically, uh, you know, that, that's really a problem. That's a problem that they're outnumbered and that they might self-silence uh, and might not feel comfortable talking about their political views or, or their views more generally. And it seemed to me so there was some denial there, denial that it was a real problem. And and, and uh, so, you know, instead of Yoel and I bloviating, even giving our opinions, we thought, hey, uh, let's let's have someone who's actually conservative uh, talk about you know his or her experience. Hence, Clay, uh, you're on the show. Yeah, so that brings me to the the first thing that I'd like to ask you. Um, so obviously, as Mickey said, one of the reasons that we uh, got interested in having you on to start with is that uh, we sort of got the impression that you self-identify as conservative. But but can you unpack that for us a little bit? Um, can you describe for us what your uh, political views are, how you see them? Yeah, of course. So I actually wouldn't identify myself as a conservative. I do think this is an interesting question, though, because other people have identified me as a conservative. Um, I would consider myself more of an independent. So in terms of behavior, I have voted for Democrats. I've voted for Republicans. I've voted for you know, the full spectrum, I think, of people who would um, you know, be considered pretty far left, for instance, in the in the primaries, oh, I'm not registered with any party, so I didn't actually vote in the primaries. Um, I was more, you know, far more sympathetic to Bernie Sanders um, than I was to um, Hillary Clinton, for instance. Um, but you know, I voted for, I actually voted for Hillary Clinton in the general election. Um, I voted, but I voted for a Republican governor of our state. You know, I voted for a, I've, so I've, you know, I'm all over the. The board. I do write. I am a regular contributor to National Review, which, of course, is a more um, conservative, classical, liberal, um, you know, uh, magazine. Um, I can very much speak to the conservative experience. I definitely grew up in a very conservative environment, and which you know we can we can unpack if you if you like. Um, but I, you know, I I kind of try to be you know, judge issues as they come. I try, you know, I have my biases and my way of thinking. <laughs> I've been married almost 20 years, so I know my way of thinking is not always right. <laughs> it's often not right. <laughs> and, you know, so I've, you know, I've been humbled by marriage and humbled by a lot of things. Um, but I definitely would say I'm to the right of most of our colleagues yeah, so I do want to get into uh, your background and and how you got to where you are today, um, but I think this is actually uh, such an interesting question that I want to explore it a, a little more. Like, given that you don't identify as a conservative, and that in fact you voted for the Democrat in the last election, do you have a feeling for how it got around that you're like the conservative social psychologist? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know, except. I, well, I mean, there are a few things that seem obvious. One, I've written, you know, criticisms of the campus 
you know, kind of left ideology. So, you know, that's, you know, I think if you, you know, it's interesting, right? That's an interesting uh, phenomenon that if you criticize something, it's assumed that you're on the opposite side of it, I think, in, you know, in many instances, which might speak to, if I'm correct about that, might speak to you know, some real problems we have generally that we're not, you know, it's just assumed that you wouldn't criticize yourself or your own people or your own side of an issue. So that's interesting in itself. Um, obviously, being a regular contributor to National Review, probably people assume, well, you've got to be, you know, pretty hardcore conservative. But which maybe this is maybe this is where, you know, as social psychologists, we often don't trust people's own self. <laughs> You know, self-reports. So maybe I shouldn't trust my self-report when I say I'm not a conservative, because certainly I think there's a number of behavioral indicators that people could bring to bear and say, "Well, Clay, you do X, Y, and Z that aligns you more with the right than um, with the left." But you know, I think if we get into my family background a little, it, 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 I think it's kind of easier to see, you know, see some of the nuances of you know how different people might view what what. Um, what conservative versus liberal means. I mean, I think uh, it's often the case that, you know, anyone who is, you know, slightly left or to the right of you is considered a liberal or a conservative, right? So, you know, you describe yourself as more as a centrist, uh, maybe an independent, um, but because your attitudes are more to the right of the majority of our colleagues, then I think it's maybe easy to see you as uh, conservative, but it's interesting that you don't necessarily identify that way yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a great place to segue, actually. I would love to hear about, you know, how did you grow up um, and what was the path that you took to uh, to grad school and then to eventually becoming an academic? Yeah, so I was actually born in Cote d'Ivoire, West Africa. My parents were Southern Baptist missionaries. And I lived there for the first six years of my life. Uh, my siblings and I became um, deathly ill with malaria. So we left the country. Um, we would have ended up leaving shortly after anyway because of you know, political instability. Um, in fact, the house that my father built for our family was a number of years ago. Um, blown up by you know by gorillas and you know even when i think that you i don't know if you'll remember this i can't even remember how many years ago it was but many years ago there was a it was in an, it was in the international news of um you know and and i don't know if it's a coup attempt or in some in some sort of you know conflict that this french boarding school the kids were taking taken hostage um, that was the boarding school that my older sister, I was too young, um, but that my older sisters um, went to and that I would have presumably attended. Um, so yeah, so that, you know, then we moved back to Missouri. So my family, the rest of my family is, you know, from Southwest Missouri. Um, oh, and by the way, before, before my parents moved to Africa, my parents were there 10 years. Um, before they moved there, they were, you know, they were, I'd say they were kind of Christian hippies. Um, they they were missionaries in Yosemite National Park in in, Cal in California. So they lived in the park, and if you look at old pictures of them, I mean they um, they just you know look kind of like well, I guess a lot of people look like that in the '60s and '70s, but 
you know, they, they were they were preaching to the hippies, I think, um, in California. Um, and then they, you know, they my dad really wanted to be a foreign, you know, foreign missionary. So he was waiting to be, you know, stationed somewhere. And so he went to a language school in um, California to learn French. And then my parents were sent to France for a year. They lived in France for a year, and then they moved to to Africa. So you know, when we moved when we moved back to Missouri, or when we moved to Missouri, um, I grew up in Southwest. You know, I spent the rest of my childhood, adolescence in Southwest Missouri, in a very. In fact, it's the. I don't know if you remember this, but um, Joplin, Missouri, is my hometown. That was the city that was destroyed by the tornado. In fact, my childhood home there was destroyed. So I have a really bad track record with. I'm never inviting you over, man. <laughs> I know. Don't invite me over unless you want your unless you want to collect on your. Wait, wait, hold insurance. on. I want to follow that up because, you know, we were supposed to record this podcast about a month ago, and then, oh. <laughs> you know, I think, I, I, you know, the morning of, you're like, dudes, my house got hit by lightning, and you were living in a hotel. Is that true? I mean, what what was that about? This is true. We are just finally getting near the end of rehabilitating our house, um, which was struck by lightning. So anyway, sorry, we were at uh, your parents moved back to the U.S. because you guys all got malaria. Is that right? Every every child got malaria? Um, yeah, I think so. Or at least, you know, there's five of us kids. I'm one of five, you know, from a big family. Certainly several of us had it and were very, very ill. And yeah, so then I, you know, I spent the, you know, I grew up in Missouri, and you know, my my, and I have a big family there, you know, grandparents, cousins, aunts and uncles, and you know, I grew up in a very, um, I mean, my parents were Southern Baptist, so you know, I don't know if you know much about that, but it's, I mean, we didn't, you know, we didn't drink alcohol, that uh, my parents didn't drink alcohol, um, which I'm obviously drinking alcohol with <laughs> with both of you. Is this your is this your first time in a long this time? Is my, this is my first beer ever. <laughs> so I thought was it wrong to start with a with a um, twenty five ounce um, experimental IPA? Yeah, was yeah. So you, so you obviously grew up in a very religious home, uh, and uh, were you religious yourself? I mean, you must have. I, I imagine growing up in a home like that. Yeah. No. I mean, I in you know I have I have my criticisms of. Of religion and but I, you know to be perfectly honest I, I I think I had a pretty ideal um, religious upbringing and I and I this is relevant I think to our conversation um, about some of the issues going on in, in in academia because you know you often hear all these sort of negative attitudes about Christians you know the anti-science closed-minded and I mean, to be perfectly honest, I just didn't really experience a lot of that. I mean, I I know that you know people I went to church with were certainly creationists, but there was never you know this is something I think that's really inspired some of my my research because there's this odd phenomenon of uh, people saying these things and you know that that you know they. They believe these stories, or you know, they they say they believe these stories, but there was no, I never experienced any negative attitude towards education or science. In fact, I mean, quite the opposite. It was you know, and there's research, you know, there's national polling data on this about you know, kids that are religious do really well and tend to do really well in school and have fewer academic problems. And I think there's some evidence that they are more likely to to go to college. 
Um, and so there was never any sense in my household um, that you distrusted science or that you challenged your biology teacher or, or anything like that. So I just, you know, I, I didn't have, you know, I had a good, I had a, had a good experience. Um, I will say there are issues that uh, in that kind of conservative church, there are issues that people don't really, and this is, I think, kind of similar in academia. There are things that maybe people think but don't say, and there are certainly, um, there's certainly a self kind of censorship, I think, that goes on where you don't want to challenge certain narratives and you certainly don't want to ask, um, you know, kind of provocative questions. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I'm not, so I'm not saying there's no, there's no issues, but there wasn't any real sense of anti-intellectualism or anti-science. And, um, there certainly wasn't, um, there wasn't any, it was never framed as you have a conflict between faith and science. Um, now, my father definitely um, was very critical of secular culture, but really it is in ways that I think a lot of progressives would identify with. Like, he did not like the materialistic consumer culture. Um, in fact, he didn't really want to leave Africa. He, he thought that in many ways they were um, living better in a more honest Christian lifestyle than many um, Americans um, because they they weren't materialistic um, conservatives. Of course, there is actually this term, though, I don't know if you've heard this, called crunchy con. Crunchy cons. I, I haven't, actually. Can you uh, elaborate on that for us? It's like hippie, cons- it's like granola conservative, like it's, it's like conservatives who in many ways live like you would think of you know, kind of a hip, you know, the stereotypical hippie liberal who wants to eat, you know, fresh local food and concerned about the environment. I mean, my dad was recycling in our hometown in Missouri. There was no city recycling scheme. I mean, he was just doing this stuff on his own. And it used to really aggravate him because he would say, I just don't understand, you know, God gave us this, this planet. It's a gift and people are disrespecting it. This is so fascinating because, I mean, it shows you to to what extent some of the attitudes that we now associate with, let's say, being a liberal or being a conservative are, they're manufactured in some extent, to some extent. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing liberal or conservative about being for the environment, right? Um, there's nothing liberal or conservative about, you know, eating fresh produce uh, that's locally grown. Um, but yet, you know, we have now, it seems like, to now call yourself a liberal, it means you're, you, you're constrained to a menu of options. Or to call yourself a conservative means you're constrained to a, a menu of options. And um, I guess, in a way, part of the conversation so far is we're, we're seeing how um, you know, one doesn't need to conform to necessarily the entire menu uh, and still be a liberal or a conservative. But I'd like to hear a little bit about uh, what are your experiences like as a relatively conservative academic? Uh, have you do you feel like your political identity um, has affected your academic life in any way? I don't want pity. <laughs> I certainly don't feel bad for myself. And I have, you know, as a lot of the things that I, you know, complain about in academia, I do because I think it harms the academy. I think it harms the research. 
first thing I got real backlash on is I wrote an article in our local, an opinion article, in our local newspaper after the election of Trump because our university decided to send out an email um, promoting, you know, the maybe promoting might be strong, um, making students aware of the availability of counseling services in the wake of, you know, the Trump apocalypse op- or whatever you want to call it, you know, the election of Trump, right? Um, and you know, I, were, I, you know, I wrote this article saying, you know, I, I just don't think that that's a good idea, and. I think people. I think a lot of these, you know, a lot of administrators and faculty are really projecting their their anxieties and why they're, you know, they're they're mad, their bitterness. Um, when I just don't, you know, think our students care. Um, our, by the way, our student body is 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 has our student body has good viewpoint diversity. It's about a third conservative, a third liberal, a third. Other, you know, which I think comprises libertarian, don't care, just trying to function, looking for beer, you know, that <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I think, and, you know, there wasn't, and, and to be clear, I'm not trying to say that, you know, there wouldn't be students that, um, that already have some kind of, you know, vulnerability that this is the type of thing that might upset them. But, but my point was that everyone are, you know, our, our uh, mental health services are already well advertised, um. They're basically on every syllabus, on every wall. Um, people, you know, it, I just didn't think it was a very, um, it was a very good idea. And then, you know, really, I was writing about like this, this kind of victimhood culture idea, and saying, you know, in, instead of sitting around and be, you know, feeling vulnerable, when I just really wasn't any evidence to feel that way on our campus. The, you know, we should be thankful if you step, if you get a step on a college campus um, in the United States. As a student, and you know, not as somebody who has to clean the toilets, for instance, um, you, you're fortunate. And so it was kind of a plea to count your blessings, sort of thing. And let's not, you know, sit around and feel sorry for ourselves that if we're not happy about the Trump election. And I tried to be, you know, I, I tried to be, you know, respectful. Um, but people did not like that. Um, there was a big backlash from um, from faculty. Um, in terms of, and, and, and I got the, I got the classic clay has white male privilege. Um, I got the kind of identity politics response. Who was criticizing you? Um, faculty. So in your department or in other departments um, or? It, it, the range, I think other departments, um, but, um, none of this was, you know, I want to be careful cause I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to like. I'm not calling anyone out or, you know, I'm not here to attack anyone, but, you know, there was some faculty um, and they, and the thing that was interesting about it was they didn't, they didn't come to me. This was sort of through other platforms and social media. And at the time I wasn't on Facebook, um, but they were, you know, saying things about me to other people on Facebook. Um, and it's just kind of, but I just kind of almost like petty high school stuff, I thought. And it wasn't really an argument. You know, it was interesting is there wasn't really an argument against, you know, what I was saying. It was against me. And I found that kind of fascinating um, because, we, I mean, we have PhD. I mean, these are people with PhDs and 
their response was, well, Clay's got white male privilege. There were some interesting um, comments in the newspaper, which so I don't know who the, you know who they were that, that doesn't, they weren't necessarily faculty, but like Clay, uh, like um, somebody called me um, Alt Reich. Alt Reich, wow, that's uh, that's intense. Yeah, stuff like that. So you know, and and you know, I've written other, you know, I've written other articles, and um, you know, I, that art, you know, I wrote basically a version of that article for the Wall Street Journal about the 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 berkeley you know i'm sending out information about um, mental health services because of a ben shapiro talk now i mean think about you don't have to like ben shapiro you know i personally think he's fine i don't you know the thing about me this (laughs) i think most people are fine like you could bring some hardcore you know communist to campus that wants to rail on you know destroy the system what you know i would just be like oh yeah that's you know let's let's hear this cat that's interesting (laughs) that berkeley one really was more like framed if you read it it was it was kind of framed as essentially we expect this to be traumatizing to people like it was set up like this is going to be really bad and we're going to be on site ready um and so i just you know i just that kind of stuff you know i just think that's you know that's not that's not helping the people who if you know there are surveys about what college students present with when they go to counseling services and guess what they don't say they don't say there's a republican speaking on campus and i want to you know and i feel totally distressed and so i mean it just is not it's not a real issue like that's not why college students are mental you know have have mental health issues yeah i mean, i see your point i mean in some ways it's um it's belittling uh you know the, the the students and faculty who who really do need the help. Again, I don't think there's anything inherent about the left, the campus left. It just is. You know, they control the marketplace of ideas on on these issues, and so there's not a lot of people counting. So yeah, I've gotten blowback and stuff like that. Um, I've also, you know, so there are things that are a little bit harder to, you know, certainly impossible to to, to quantify, but I do feel like I've been ostracized. Um, I do feel like that there are people that used to, I think, like me <laughs> and don't really um, like me or more. Clay, I, I, I actually really want to, I really want to, talk about you know this this feeling of ostracism and self-silencing and your experiences I, I find that super fascinating but I, I need to admit I've I'm, I'm done my beer and and I, I want to get another one and maybe we'll take a little short little break back. Uh, this is the point in the show where I tell you how to reach us. Uh, so we always love hearing from our listeners. We've been hearing a lot about our most recent episode about 
when does the left go too far? Um, so we've really been enjoying that feedback and we're actually planning uh, in a future episode to kind of go into that in more depth. Um, so please keep that coming. Uh, how to reach us? Uh, we're on Twitter at at 4 Pod. Our DMs are open. So whether we follow you or not, you can send us a DM. You can also at mention us. If you'd rather email, we are 4 Pod at gmail.com. And our website, as always, is 4beers.fireside.fm, where you can find our extensive archive of past episodes. Uh, Mickey, do you want to tell the audience what we're drinking now? Yeah, I do. So, uh, well, it's uh, I, uh, it's hot in here, and Yoel uh, lives like a uh, like an animal and doesn't have air conditioning. So, I turned uh, off the air conditioning because it's bad for the audio. Yeah, excuses, excuses. Uh, so, uh, so I'm hot, and I, I need I need some more beer. Uh, so, uh, so I was. This is more German beer, and this is not as fancy as the first one. So that was hand delivered by Malta Frieza. Uh, so we enjoyed that. This one, I, I'll admit, I got it in the uh, the airport in uh, Munich. Uh, so Bavarian beer. Uh, it was a it was a three pack. It was one point five liters, uh, half a liter each bottle. So we got some big bottles, um, and all from Bavaria. I'm drinking something called, and I'm gonna butcher this, uh, Adler Koenig, an Ertip Hell. So I think this is a, a lager, a, a lighter beer, I believe. I have got uh, a Doppelbock here, uh, Doppelhirsch, and this is a half a liter, and it's like seven point two percent. So this is gonna this is really going to do me, and I am going to be cursing your name. Yes, well, you know, this is, you know, I, I think because of the heat, you're actually drinking a bit more. So maybe we should plan on, like, turning up the heat next episode as well. Just sweat it out. Just sweat it out as you drink it. Yeah, that's right. So, and, and, and uh, uh, Clay, you're, you're, still, uh, you're still on the, the King Can? Yeah, I'm, dr- I'm still drinking the, the experimental IPA. Excellent. Cheers. So before the break, we were talking about your experiences of um, people reacting to you, I guess, uh, kind of putting forward an unpopular point of view in the wake of Trump's election. And there was actually one thing that you said that um, that stuck out to me that I was curious to push back on a little bit. So you said, like, look, the reaction that I got from people, it wasn't an argument. It was just kind of name calling where they said, yeah, you know, Clay has white privilege. And so uh, his argument is invalid. And I think that's a kind of an interesting thing about this, like this privilege talk is that, um, it can come across that way as just, uh, you know, an ad hominem, but if you interpret it charitably, you could say, well, look, like as a straight married white guy, um, you're not as threatened by Trump as like, let's say a transgender person or an undocumented immigrant, or even just a garden variety African-American, um, do you think that there's any any merit to to an argument like that? Yeah. So yeah. So it really speaks to the broader issue of privilege, which I, I sort of struggle with that concept. I'm from a town in Missouri that there are a lot of poor white folk. Some of the schools, some of the elementary schools in my hometown, nearly 90% of the students are on free or reduced lunch. What that means in the United States is they can't pay for, they're poor enough to where the school pays for their lunches, whereas, you know, the rest of us, you know, pay for our kids' school lunches. Um, I, you know, my, you know, because of my background, um, and not just in Africa, but, you know, when Back in the U.S., my parents were, you know, my grandfather actually started the first homeless shelter in my hometown. 
Um, my parents were very, my mom still is, my, my dad's um, no longer with us, but uh, uh, very involved with um, services for, for, the, for needy families in the community. And there are certainly um, people of color in, in, in my hometown, but it's, a, you know, it's largely white. And a ton of, uh, of poor white people. And so one of, and not just poor, not just economically poor, culturally and socially poor and family poor. And, and what I mean by that is um, there's a lot of kids I went to school with who, whose dads beat the crap out of them, right? Um, whose moms were alcoholics or who you know, didn't know their dads. Or um, there's a hardness in poor white America um, that is actually very similar. I mean, I think a lot of these issues that really pull at me when I see these identity politics on campus and I see this privilege theory or intersectionality or, or some variant of that, I was like, I don't think people realize that race is often not, it's a proxy, but it's often not the most diagnostic variable of suffering. Now, I'm not trying to take away from the fact that absolutely there are unique disadvantages to walking around black. I'm not saying that you know that they don't that the African Americans don't face unique challenges, but what I'm saying is, you can imagine being African American, growing up in a nice you know like where I live now, a nice middle class suburban community, having two loving parents and being an intact having an intact family life and being able to take violin and piano lessons and you know play sports and your parents can afford that and. Um, and to say that that person is automatically more disadvantaged than the kid who, than you know, than the white kid in rural Missouri who, if he's lucky enough to know his dad, um, um, beats the crap out of him, and it actually is looking forward to his dad being in prison because um, that means he's not going to hit on his mom, um, and that you know, or his brother's not modeling that behavior and beating the crap out. I mean, there were kids that were just hard at my school. They just had the look of, they just had the look of life was hard, right? Um, you know, the methamphetamine problem is a major issue. I mean, there are kids that, um, in my hometown, that their teachers pack their backpacks with snacks and food at the end of the day because they know they're not eating again till the next day when they get to school. Um, there's kids whose parents will steal those snacks from them. Um, so, I mean... I, you know, I think there is a real issue with simplifying, and I do think that you know, as as um, empiricists, we know a lot of times we use, you know, we model variables, and you know, they predict a certain amount of the variance, and you know, they're you know, they're of value. But I think that you know, there's a lot of times in what I would call kind of a progressive elite culture, and it's often white, white liberal elite culture. Um, that fails to see how disadvantaged. Um, there's a lot. The poor white folk and poor black folk have a lot more in common, I think, than um, than a lot of people realize. And I can see, um, I can see where people kind of, you know, I, I think Trump is a con artist and he's fooled these people. But I can see the desperation that a lot of people think that, um, you know, pivot to this white identity politics almost because they see no one's speaking for me and my life sucks too and you know yet these people with PhDs are 
people with Harvard law degrees who now get to sit on the editorial board of the New York Times um, get to tell me that I'm privileged because I'm a white male when you know when my life's been um, been one you know one type of suffering after another. So that I mean that's kind of how that's the other sort of broader you know complaint I have about the sort of pr- calling privilege on people that you don't know. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, so I, I think it's interesting, like this concept of intersectionality, which, you know, gets a lot of pushback from the right. Um, but I, I do think it's a useful idea of uh, you have kind of multiple overlapping identities that carry with them di- different advantages and disadvantages, right? So uh, all else equal, it's probably better to be a straight white male than not. But certainly uh, somebody who's straight, white, and male, but grows up in an environment of extreme poverty and deprivation um, faces disadvantages that somebody who grows up middle class doesn't, right? So class, uh, like economic and social class, just kind of seems to get left out of these analyses often in a way that I find to be baffling given all that we know about how important that is for, for life outcomes, right? Yeah. No, it, it's baffling's right. I mean, it's, it's borderline suspicious that it's left out. Um, I know there's been reports at American universities that, um, that all these attempts at diversity have really failed to um, change the economic landscape of, of universities. And, you know, a lot of that, you know, might have to do a lot with the fact that our universities are, are, are businesses pretending not to be businesses. Um, but there, you know, there's, I've heard, you know, and again, I can't, I can't, you know, I'm not an economist or even a sociologist or, you know, I can't evaluate some of the, I've heard proposals like, and if, instead of using like race-based affirmative action, we should use some sort of economic base, and that would actually still have a very similar effect of uh, of increasing um, racial diversity um, because there would be a lot of you know poor minorities, but it would also remove race as the diagnostic you know criteria, and so you would get you know poor white folk in there too. I mean, I I just I would ask you about the you know about the your defense of intersectionalities. I mean, it seems to me that there's a lot of situations in which that is a very rigid structure that doesn't necessarily transcend every environment. And, and you know, and I like to you know I think we should I like to have generosity of spirit. I think a lot of these ideas. People, you know, people that take this stuff very seriously at a scholarly level um, are aware of, but what happens is it's just kind of, it's activists that are kind of using these terms loosely, and that's where it gets the bad name a lot of times because you have people just throwing around white cisgen, you know, like just using that, being cavalier as an insult, and and you know, I, and I'm I'm sympathetic to that because I think. I think, you know, in my defense of conservatives, I think that happens on the right a lot, too, where conservatives will bring certain theoretical ideas to the table and people will just um, be really cavalier about how they use them. And then you can pick the goofiest representative of the conservative movement and easily knock them down, you know, easily pick on them without really ever having to dig deeper and challenge, you know, the real intellectual class of of conservatives, so I think I think that kind of happens a lot too. In fairness, um, 
yeah. on the left yeah, where the right picks on the, the most wild versions of, of these. So I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'm not an expert on this stuff on a theoretical level either. Um, to me, it seems most sensible if you're talking about like on average. So averaging across groups of people, um, the people who have some identities tend to be advantaged socially over others. But for any individual, I don't know that this concept makes a ton of sense, right? Because I can be advantaged on the basis of my, you know, demographic identities, but I might have, I don't know, uh, crippling social anxiety or uh, be really a debilitating short. disease or what's that? Be really short. Or be I might really be short. Really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mickey keeps banging the short drum. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems like there's more and more the case that people aren't willing to grant others good intentions or that they really care about these issues. And again, I know this happens on the right too, but I work in academia. And in academia, I feel like you do see this if somebody takes a position or brings up a question that even gives the slightest like sniff of being right wing, you know, of being correlated with something from the right, motives are are questioned. You know, your motives are questioned. Um, yeah, I, mean, and, I, th I think this issue of, of of villainizing the opposition. I mean, it's just so toxic for our politics, for community, for just, you know, figuring stuff out. Um, yeah, and, and, yeah it, it does really bother me. And, and you know, we it, I, I rudely interrupted you before our break about, you know, the story you had about being ostracized. And I, I you know, I want to I, I probe that a bit. I, I want to, you know, tell me about that. Like, I mean, is this... Uh, at conferences, is in your department. I mean, like, tell me, like, how how are you ostracized? Yeah, so I mean, there are people that, um, not even just really at the de department level, um, but there are. I mean, I have I have a few friends in the department, um, but there are. You know, I, I'm certainly not going to give any names, but there are colleagues in the field that. I wouldn't say we're best friends, but I think if distance themselves from me um, are still, va I think they still value my mind. And, you know, when it comes to, you know, I've, you know, I'm not a famous social psychologist or anything like that, but, you know, I've, I've done okay. And, you know, I think I make good contributions to projects and I think people respect that. I mean, I think people are, are able to say, hey, you know, Clay's the dude who's the expert on nostalgia, or Clay knows a lot about meaning in life. And so, you know, I don't think it's the case that people aren't willing to work with me or anything like that, but there is a interpersonal distance, I think, of where I used to get more, like, you know, be, go back and forth on emails or stuff with people and talk about stuff, and there does seem to be a bit more of a, this is just business, um, and, you know, that's fine. It's a job. I mean, one of the, I actually had this, this conversation with, you know, because since I started writing things, a lot of professors have actually, from different universities have emailed me telling me their stories of ostracism and, and students as well. Um, and, you know, interestingly, a lot of um, minority students have, have emailed me and been like, I'm a, you know, I'm an I'm a, um, African-American conservative and the college Democrats are, you know, telling me that I'm a, 
well, I don't want to use the words, but um, some pretty derogative terms for the fact that they identify as conservative. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is fascinating. And I, I think we could sit here probably another six hours and keep talking about <laughs> politics. Yeah. Um, but I, I would like to spend a little time um, talking about your book, um, which I, I think is just uh, on such an interesting, provocative topic. Um, but maybe instead of like clumsily trying to summarize it, I, I'll let you do that and just ask you to tell our listeners, what is your book about? Yeah, so my book's called Supernatural, Death, Meaning, and the Power of the Invisible World. And basically the idea is, you know, looking at why people believe or hold supernatural beliefs. And I sort of address, you know, kind of straight away that there's, you know, that there's, you know, there's multiple reasons, you know, there's multiple variables at play from cognitive to, to motivational and there's already been a number of really great cognitive science of religion types of books, but I was, you know, writing something really more from the motivational perspective, particularly relating to existential motives and the need for meaning. Um, but in the book, I do get into um, what I think is really interesting intersects between uh, inter intersections between you know, cognition and motivation, which is kind of the direction that that um, that my lab's been been going in more lightly, but the basic idea is I challenge this. I start with this idea that um, humans are uniquely existential animals, that as far as we know, we're the only species that, you know, grapples with questions about our mortality, about our purpose in life, um, what happens, um, after, you know, after we die and these, and these sorts of issues. Um, and as a result of this, we're, um, you know, at least at least partly as a result of this, we're spiritually curious or you know motivated beings that are you know that are struggling not just to um, live longer, but to live lives of meaning and to have some sense of enduring or transcendent you know purpose. And you know, a lot of the the research we've been doing you know more lately is is actually taking a more individual difference approach. Um, looking at the need for meaning as an individual difference, which we find to be a strong um, predictor um, when pitted against other cognitive and you know motivational variables for a wide range of supernatural beliefs, including traditional beliefs about you know about religiosity and belief in God, but also a range of paranormal beliefs as well, belief in ghosts, um, kind of dualist beliefs that you know that we have a we have a soul and a body. Um, it's kind of superstitions, um, tele, you know, kind of teleological reasoning that things, you know, things happen by design, and and so I get into that, and then I also, you know, where I think that where I think these issues get interesting is looking at at, at trend, you know, trends in in the West, you know, in Western Europe, the United States, and Canada, as you both know, I'm sure, um, religion is in deep decline in the West. Um, even in the United States, we're pretty dramatically within the last decade or so, you know, making real progress, and if you call it that, on Europe as far as becoming more secular. Um, I think, you know, I think the most optimistic estimate is, you know, somewhere between 25 and 40 percent of people go to church, and it's probably lower than that. I mean, we're relying on, on self-report here. Um, 
a lot of people, you know, young people in, in particular don't identify as religious. They, they're less likely to say religion's important in their life. Um, atheism is still by far the minority view, but those, those numbers are increasing. And there's the debate about really how many, you know, what percentage of the American population is atheist. It could range from, you know, 2% to 25%, depending on, you know, some of the some of the research, some of the um, uh, methodological approaches people have taken. Yeah, this is really cool work by uh, Will Gervais. Yes, yes. Uh, suggesting that uh, atheists have been undercounted because, in a way, it's a stigmatized identity. People don't want to admit being atheists, but when you kind of ask them or get at it in an indirect way, all of a sudden, yeah, it shoots up to twenty five or. Is, is that is it was that the ceiling of, of that estimate? I, I think now. it was something like twenty eight or something. Yeah. So there, so there is these you know he uses these very clever right indirect methods, um, and so yeah, I mean, but then on the other side of it, um, just as religion is in decline, there's also a fair amount of evidence looking at national and international polling that all sorts of other supernatural and paranormal beliefs are increasing. So, for instance, um, belief in astrology is up, belief in clairvoyance is up, belief in ghosts is up, belief in UFOs um, is up. These trends tend to be, you know, inversely correlated with, um, with religion. So, um, we've actually done a little bit of research linking these things to meaning, so we have a paper... It came out a couple of years ago showing, you know, doing kind of a model that um, the less religious people are, the lower they report their life having meaning, which is pretty, you know, pretty well established effect that meaning is positively correlated with religiosity. And that low um, need for, in a sequential mediation model, you know, we found some evidence that low presence of meaning predicted a high search for meaning, which in turn predicted you know, these kind of UFO beliefs. And I don't, I'm not talking about like beliefs that there might be life, probabilistic ideas that there might be life on it. I'm talking about conspiracy UFO beliefs that there are intelligent alien beings among us monitoring us and that probably had a influence in the development of our society. Um, Wait, Clay, you're, you're talking as if this is a weird idea. Yeah. What's, what's, the, what's the problem? Yeah, I know. You dude, you wouldn't even you wouldn't even believe I have been invited some of the some of the greatest experiences I've had doing this research. So I wrote an article about this for the New York Times last year. It was called something like um if you don't believe in God, maybe you'll try UFOs. And I, you know, talked about this research a little bit. And I've also given I've given talks ranging from places like I've been invited to give a talk at a universalist church. So, so somehow I've kind of got on the circuit of like the atheist secular, um, you know, kind of speaking thing where I've gone and given talks at these places, um, and then just you know, kind of the traditional talks that you know that we all get, you know, kind of university talks we all give. Dude, you'd be amazed at the number of people <laughs> that confront me. Um, not happy that I'm suggesting that UFO beliefs are in any way a form of magical thinking. Dude, I'm one of those people. <laughs> You're one of those people. <laughs> oh man, maybe we should maybe we should eject now. <laughs> Your thesis is essentially that 
so we have this meaning, this quest for meaning, and if, if it's not being fed by religiosity or God or traditional versions of God, we have these kind of other, other avenues. Um, but the way you just define meaning, let's keep it at the high level. Yeah. Uh, you know, some sort of goal, some sort of, uh, yeah, in pursuit of goals. I mean, so, you know, we've got a podcast about beer. Yeah. Um, and we like beer a lot. I mean, at least <laughs> I like beer a lot. Um, and uh, so why, you know, so I, I drive meaning from having this podcast. I really enjoy yeah. this. I enjoy talking to new people, enjoying talking to UL. Um, so this is how I, you know, drive, I also drive meaning from work. Yeah. Uh, and family, but I'm not, you know, I'm, I, yeah, yeah, I'm very skeptical of, you know, the supernatural, of ghosts, you know, horoscopes, uh, anything of that nature. So, you know, so I'm, I'm an atheist, um, so I don't have religion, and, and maybe that's led to some emptiness in my life. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but, but I do think that, you know, I, I have meaning in other spheres: work, family, friends, uh, podcasting, beer. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So why why go that extra level? Why supernatural? I mean, that's uh, to be honest. You know, that's something that I'm still trying to figure out because, um, again, we're of course we're relying on self-report here, but it's a pretty reliable finding that you know people who are highly religious, people who are highly religious report. You know, higher levels of meaning. Now, of course, we could argue that they're just reporting higher. Le- well, you know, what does that you know what does that really mean? Um, but it's but there's also evidence that the same metric of meaning, you know, the you know the scores on these meaning in life questionnaires actually do predict a pretty wide range of health outcomes. And so, not necessarily amongst the same people, but you know those, that same measure, right? So. People who score high in a, a, a presence of meaning scale um, seem to be at lower risk of depression and anxiety, and even you know, per, you know, there's some evidence that they live longer, and that you know, they they have they engage in more you know positive self-regulation, and so assuming that's a meaningful measure, you know, that that measure has value. It's interesting, right, that people who are highly religious um, score higher on that on that measure. Um, now. Of course, as you know, we just talked about earlier averages, and I think one of the things that's interesting um, is you know this this idea of you know what sometimes is referred to as weird populations, and so we're part of kind of a weird population, right? Of highly educated, um, career-oriented, successful people that you know, frankly, most of the world isn't in that. In that class, and there is actually some there is some research on this that looking at in places like New Zealand, where they looked at people's postal codes, and they found you know in neighborhoods in which there was um, in poorer neighborhoods and more you know economically disadvantaged neighborhoods, um, being an atheist wasn't really that great. Like atheists had lower you know mental health and lower well being. But in more prosperous neighborhoods, um, they didn't find a significant difference between atheists and and believers and, and on these um, mental health outcomes. So I mean, there is some, you know, there there is an argument that there is um, that we might be the weird ones, right? That um, that meet that it might be the highly educated, you know, kind of coastal elite, for lack of a better term, you know, liberal class of successful 
um, professionals who their life is just really, you know, for, you know, their life is just generally pretty good and um, they don't, you know, and, you know, I don't know because, you know, I, I don't know what to, to, to make of that. I think it's complicated, but, you know, that, that's, that's one possibility that a lot of these supernatural beliefs are about hope, right? They're about, you know, life is hard. Um, we have struggles, you know, uh, my job sucks, um, I have a lot of uncertainties. And this is something that when I get up in the morning inspires me, like gives me something to strive towards. Um, and that, of course, there are obviously a lot of very smart, well-educated, financially successful religious people that that can't explain. Um, and maybe then you have to really look at these kind of individual differences, like I was saying. Um, but I mean, I do think there is um, there is something that I really haven't figured out, but there is something that seems to be kind of special about these beliefs. And there is, you know, I, I I've started using this term more recently. I refer to as the invisible thread because one, you know, one possibility I think is supernatural beliefs bind people in unique ways. So if you and I are in the same, believe in the same religion, there might be a lot of other things you and I, we might not support the same football team. I might think that it's kind of silly that you're into German beers or, you know, whatever the case but if we share this this um, this narrative that requires a leap of faith, right, on both of our parts, like you know, that requires us to say, you know what, I don't have a ton of ton of good reason to go in, all in on this, but I'm going in on this. That might bind us in a very special way. Um, that um, that 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 forms a community um, in, uh, around a variable that that's hard to replicate. Well, so this is a great segue um, to a question that's been on my mind as you've been talking about this. So assuming that we have this kind of basic need for meaning and and, and that we can meet that need in different ways. So like I might uh, believe in a kind of a traditional organized religion, or I might believe in healing crystals or lizard people or whatever. Are all of those kind of avenues equally good at meeting that need? Or do you think that some are more effective than others? Like, are some better for us than others? That's a that's a great question, and I think it's a great question because that's exactly what we're studying right now. We have a paper that we're writing up that's not. Um, we're actually trying to learn some Bayesian statistics. <laughs> so uh, so so we're doing some things, but we um, but that but we have some other work we've published that kind of speaks a little bit to this issue. Um, I don't think all beliefs are created equal. And I, you know, so for instance, looking at the UFO thing, um, it seems to be that the like lack of meaning, search for meaning, need for meaning predicts these things. But, but those meaning motivating something as you, you know, kind of, you know, you know, touch on does not mean that that thing that you're doing actually fills that need. It just means it's driven by that need. Right. And so we, and so the fact that low meaning is associated, of course, these are, you know, correlations. The, the fact that low meaning is associated with high UFO beliefs kind of suggests that UFO beliefs aren't providing meaning, right? Because it's the people who lack meaning that are going into them. Um, so, you know, we've, we're, we're trying to get at this way in a more sophisticated, using, you know, more sophisticated tools now. But 
I I don't think all beliefs are, are are equal, and the reason I think this you know, and I wrote a piece on National Review about this about how you know this idea that it might be the case that humans not aren't becoming less oriented towards the supernatural, we just might be becoming more individualistic. And so what we're able to do is, you know, in our kind of free market society, we're able to say, hey, you know, that I, you know, I don't agree with the church's stance on X, Y, and Z, or I just don't want to bother with this stuff, so I'm going to go my own way. And that allows us to pursue, you know, it gives us an avenue to pursue spiritual interests, but we're alone. Um, and I think a lot of the benefit that comes from religion is actually collectivist. It's not individualist, right? It's saying It's saying... Regardless of what I think, I have to submit to this collective worldview that um, to be part of this group, and it's being part of it's 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 being part of that. Um, it's submitting to that that makes me feel like I'm part of something bigger than myself. And you know, a lot of these more fringe beliefs, they're not. You know, they're not social. There's not the same social scaffolding. Yeah. So I'm going to throw something out there. Um, and uh, this may strike you as too reductive or naive because, uh, I mean, I, I was brought up Jewish, but I'm not religious. Uh, so I don't really have the personal experience of this. But is it possible that we have this need for meaning, which is just kind of like a drive and you can kind of meet that need in different ways? Um, and that maybe the benefits of meeting it by religion are just incidental to the belief structure, and they're more about just the social support that you have of belonging to a community, knowing people who are going to invite you over, people who will help you out if uh, if you're in trouble, that it might just be, you know, that that's really doing the work there at producing those kind of benefits to uh, people's well-being. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that's, that's uh, a worthy hypothesis. But a number of people have kind of pointed out, at least um, casually, that all of these secular, purely secular attempts to replicate religion, you know, haven't really, you know, or they argue at least they haven't really done as as good of a job of binding people. And I don't know, I don't know, I don't know the ans- answer to that. But I think I I think where you're right is I, I do think there are clearly a number of properties that are found in religion that are not inherently religious, um, but that connect in your, in your personal example that, you know, cause I've, I know a lot of people that say, you know, I'm the, I'm an atheist Jew. I still, um, go to synagogue. I still do all these things. I still, you know, I still go through this ritual process. I still have this connection to my heritage and all those, you know, there's sort of all the elements that, you know that Christians, for example, might you know might say are are important in their faith, but then people say, "But I don't really believe." It's an interesting tension there, right? I mean, so you know, a number of years ago now, my my, my father in law is uh, is uh, uh, Jewish and uh, uh, is regular attendee at a synagogue. I mean, it's, it, that's his life. I mean, the, the Jewish community and going to synagogue, and then I probed him once, and he's like, "Yeah, he wasn't even sure if God existed. He wasn't sure if he believed in God." and it was almost secondary to him. It wasn't even an important question, which I'm like, what do you mean it's not an important question? I mean, if it's not about God, why are you going? And he's like, yeah, it's the people, it's, it's the tradition, it's the uh, the rituals, um, you have the fellow feeling, um, which makes you think that, so why is it then so difficult to get that uh, in a secular way? Um, and I wonder, so one thing that I have in mind is, um, 
and we haven't talked about this yet, but uh, so Aaron Noren Zion and, and Azim Sharif got this, you know, cool paper uh, suggesting that um, to some extent, well, they argue that uh, to some extent, belief in a, in, a, in a punishing supernatural agent is, is really important in binding people together, right? So if, if there's a punishing, omniscient uh, agent out there that knows what you're thinking and knows what you want, knows, knows what you're believing, um, then you're good. And you also have other co-religionists who also believe in the same punishing God. Uh, you then have fellow feeling and you, a sense of community is built. And, and, and it doesn't seem like, for example, believing in aliens uh, you know, they have no power over you, or at least. <laughs> well, you're good. You're a good person to ask about this. Um, you know, because I think some of this is a self-control issue. So, do you think there's something to this idea of if you, um, even, regardless of how hardcore you believe, if there's the possibility in your mind that there is a punishing supernatural agent that's monitoring you, that that has you know uh it you know it's not like a full outsourcing of self-regulation by any means but it's some sort of um i you know i've got to i have there, there there's some sort of like i have all these things pulling me in this other direction like i would rather on sunday watch football or netflix or go to the gym or drink beer with you guys or whatever but somebody's you know i would you know i um my friend needs me to come help them move furniture but you know, I would rather do this or that, but you know, if, if something you know is kind of like primed or pops up in your mind that, yeah, what well, you know, um, somebody's watching me. Um, I mean, you could imagine that sort of shepherding people towards each other and towards looking out for each other. Yeah, um, Michael McCullough's and, and, got a really excellent paper. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Michael McCullough in general, but he's got, he, yeah, he's got this awesome paper on the connection between. Uh, religi religiosity, religious practice, and self-control, and I mean, quite convincingly, so there, 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 there is a connection there, uh, such that religious people tend to have more control, and this, there could be all kinds of different reasons for it. A, a mundane one would simply be that, well, Scripture tells them, hey, I gotta, I shouldn't be drinking, I shouldn't be having premarital sex, and no drugs, etc. Um, but I think a more, uh, you know, an interesting uh, argument that he makes is, that, you know, yeah, if, if if God is watching you, then you know that's your monitor, and and in a way, like okay, I'm I'm now got extra bit of motivation to 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 do the things that I set out to do, um, and there's lots and there's lots of good evidence that uh, at different levels of analysis that yeah, uh, religious people have uh, uh, you know higher are better able at regulating themselves and meeting their goals. Yeah, I mean there is, and there are of course the weird paradox examples of you know people have talked about like in you know southern united states of like obesity rates are i mean there are higher and so is religiosity and um i mean there are also there are of course these kind of weird examples of it's not always, obviously it's not always the case that um religiosity is associated with outcomes that you might think are reflective at some level of of self control yeah so i was going to say this seems like a a great place to leave it. Um, we have taken quite a bit of your time and we very much appreciate um, you being so generous with it and uh, being willing to to chat with us. So uh, before we go, do you, do you have anything else that you want our listeners to know about? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I really, the, the time flew by. Um, I think it was a, a very fascinating conversation. Uh, well, you know what? 
maybe like one last thing before before we say goodbye is uh you know, we give you an opportunity to plug something or how can, how can, you know, our listeners, you know, find you, uh, follow you. Yeah. So if people, you know, if people are interested in, in the book that I, you know, we you know, kind of talked about a little bit, um, you can, it's available on Amazon. So, um, I'm also on the internet. I mean, I have a website, which is just clayrutledge.com. So you can pretty much find links to all my, I think all my writing and, you know, events that I've got some speaking events and some different events coming up. Um, people are interested in that. And then I'm, I think my Twitter is just Clay Rutledge or Clay.Rutledge or something. I'm not hard to find on, on Twitter. And I, um, I, you know, on Twitter, I try to, you know, promote a wide range of ideas and, and ideas that I know a lot of social psychologists don't like. So... <laughs> So if you're looking for if you know if you're a, a progressive you know um, academic that's interested in being pushed a little bit out of your comfort zone, then yeah, follow me on Twitter. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll put links to uh, to all of that in the show notes for our listeners, and uh, I do really encourage you guys to to follow Clay because it's useful uh, to be pushed a little bit out of your comfort zone. I think that's one of the things that Twitter is. Uh, is really good for. Um, so Clay, again, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we had an amazing time chatting with you. Um, and I hope that we can catch up with you at a conference or something soon. I don't know if you normally go to these things, but, uh, if you do, we'd I like to will see you. be, I will be the keynote speaker at the SPSP, um, psychology of religion and spirituality pre-conference. Um, so yeah, I'll be, at you know, I'll be there. Fantastic. Well, I, I don't know about Mickey, but I'm going, so uh, I'd love to uh, buy you a beer.